What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. And Sean. Coming to you not live. We're back to home. I'm back down in Jersey. Sean's, you know, hanging out in New York City still. Which you always have a permanent place here on the couch should you ever return and visit Bobby. Yeah, I was talking to Christina. We, we might do like a, uh, a day trip up to the city or like an overnight trip. Well, it was too easy for you to get up here on the bus and then take public trans uh, down oh, to man. my spot. Dude, the, the bus to New York City is stupid cheap. I was like looking at, I looked at Amtrak and Amtrak tickets were like 80 bucks one way, which was like, eh, for like a two hour trip. It's like kind of expensive. But the Bolt bus, huge shout out to Bolt. Uh, it was $15 one way and they pick you up in like Philly or they can pick you up in Jersey and just drop you off in the city for, it's like a two hour, depending on traffic for 15 bucks. It's like a great deal. Now, knowing that you're coming from Philly did they prorate those tickets because people need larger seats coming out of the cheesesteak capital of the world? <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they, they, I mean, I guess they, it's all, it's pretty cost efficient if you think about like a bus shuttle service. Cause I mean, your only cost is like paying a driver, which is like what, 10 bucks an hour. And then I guess paying the bus is kind of expensive, but these are all like those refurbished, uh, um, like high school coach buses I used to take in high school to like go on like trips. Remember that? I do. Uh, many, many an orchestra trip I did take. Yeah. So like those buses, uh, I guess they just like buy them, use a refurbished or whatever and just make them, you know, into a coach bus for travel. I've seen a lot of like do it yourself refurbishments of buses like that into mobile homes. Oh uh, dude, ever, I would like, love to do that. Like the tiny home with like the uh, like the, the van life thing. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Like if you, I, I would never forego having an actual physical home, but mm -hmm. I would love something like that where you could drive up to like Whistler or, you know, somewhere to go skiing and you can essentially park the thing and just enjoy maximizing the amount of time that you're spending out of it, but then having somewhere comfortable. I think Mercedes makes like a version of the, like the ski traveler. I think it might be called yeah. the traveler. Yeah, it's like the like the um, like the sprinter vans that they like yes. refurbed inside. Yeah, I'd love to do that one day. Just like drive around the country and just like stay and like live out of van. I think it'd be great, cool. It'd be kind of cool life to do. That'd be very cool. They one of the the contestants from Bachelor in Paradise, Dean, actually lived out of van for the last year or two. Now that he's an influencer, and when he told his now girlfriend, I think. I think it was Caitlin. Was that it on the show? I'm acting like I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they I mean, now like live in a van traveling and taking those stupid Instagram model photos with those stupid girl cowboy hats on with portrait mode on. So everything in the background is a blended version of some fall foliage color palette and wearing some like culturally appropriated dress and looking off into the distance for the 600 take of that photo. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any of these people, but I dig you it. Don't. I dig the vibe. Dude, getting back to the seats, though, I feel like you have as much room on a Sprinter bus as you do on airlines nowadays. Yeah, I'd say it's about the same. Uh, I definitely say it's about the same seat, like uh, personal space compared to an airline. I hate the fact that you have to purchase to upgrade to get extra leg room. Yeah, the leg room was fine. It's just like it's just like east west versus north south. 
personal space. Like the seats are kind of close together, but like north south, you have plenty of leg room. You know what I mean? I never have enough reg loom. Reg loom. Jeez, I never have enough leg room. <laughs> I get like my knees slammed into because the person in front of me wants to throw their chair back before takeoff, and then turn around and try to identify what the obstacle is that is making all of the crunching sound as they move that little button and knob into the rearward position. Not a fan. Yeah. I need I need bigger seats. I need this to be like Mad Men style seating from the 70s and 80s with like a Lazy Boy-esque feel. Oh, yeah, that'd be sick. I used to like watching like the uh, like some TV sh- or whatever, like set or movies set back then, like looking at the amount of leg space and like the experience people had when they were flying. It's like what an experience. They used to be like. And they used to smoke on board. Yeah. They used to be, what, th- well, that's what they marketed it as like an enjoyable experience. But now it's just become like moving cattle. Yeah. Well, it's still it's still great. I think the train is the most comfortable way to travel because the chairs are still relatively big on yeah like especially the Acela with with Amtrak like that's a real quick trip to go either up to Boston or down to DC like I'll be jumping on it to go spend Thanksgiving down in uh, the nation's capital. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Amtrak's Amtrak's great. Just like uh, it's just a little on the expensive side though. Oh, it, it depends. It, I got the tickets when they were like fifty percent off on some promotion like a month or two ago. Uh, I've got a dude that's in school with me that's from uh, a little bit north of where I am at, and the tickets were $350 round trip. To that's like flying. It's like, it, yeah, it is like flying, except the tickets to fly were $550. Oh, that's probably what they do, though. He's, he waited a, you know, a month out to purchase, and, and that's, what, that's what it got him. So he's, yeah. buses are sold out. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He's probably just going to stay here. Uh, that sucks. Yeah, because I was when I was looking at the the Amtrak like uh, train tickets, those was like the week of or like two or three days before I left to come visit you. So that's probably why they're so expensive. But I guess if you like buy them farther out in advance, I mean you probably get a pretty cheap deal on them. I think you, I think you definitely, dude. Oh, dude, switching subjects. I saw Jojo Rabbit last night. Was it good? Incredible movie. It was mm-hmm. way darker than I anticipated. Uh-huh. But Taika Waititi is batting like a thousand on the movies that he directs and the movies that he has like a small role in. It was probably one of the best movies I've seen this year outside of Endgame. And I think Aquaman came out last year, but I'm going to count Aquaman uh, in this category just because Jason Momoa is incredible. You got to watch, uh, you still have to watch Joker. I still do have to. You are absolutely right. They they just grossed a billion dollars. Was it the first R-rated movie to do so? Yeah. Besides, what they beat Deadpool too. I think that's what it was. Or they beat Deadpool. I didn't think Deadpool two was that good. I didn't watch it. I'll be honest. I mean, I started watching it, but I did not watch it all the way. You know what? I finally kind of connect with guys that like Deadpool. Huh. If you like Deadpool, you're the kind of bro vet that gets out of the army. And goes and spends thousands of dollars on kit that you didn't wear while you were in the army. Goes and spends thousands of dollars on weapons that you didn't have in the army with a silencer and all these other optics. 
to grow out a beard, to buy Peltors, to go to shooting ranges weekly and pull the trigger more than you did when you were in the Army on profile, not going to the range. That's the kind of guy that loves Deadpool, that acts like, yeah, I'm this hardcore fighter. Like, you had an opportunity to do it while you were in. You could have volunteered to go to SFAS. RASP, I understand, you needed a 4187. That's, you know, the release authority on a battalion brigade commander level. But to go and join an organization where you could have done that in real life and then you choose to do it afterwards, that's the kind of guy that, like, prescribes to the Deadpool comedy, that watches it over and over again, has that Deadpool tattooed probably, like, on his magazine next to the Magpul sticker. Like, that is who I'm convinced made Deadpool so successful. Right. Yeah, I mean... I think Deadpool also has like that whole like meta aspect or quality to it, that fourth wall where he like talks to you and like makes fun of every other like superhero movie. So there's like the edginess to it, so I can buy that. I didn't appreciate Deadpool too much because that overly acted sarcasm. Yeah, that, it's like, like that cynicism. Anti, that's the hero. Yeah, but that's the same reason why people like Amy Schumer aren't funny. Because they try to do this dry delivery where you know they're being sarcastic, but it's just, it's not funny. And then when you say outlandish things in a serious tone, because the audience knows it, it's coming, and just because you look at the screen while you say it, like, I'm supposed to fall out of my chair laughing, rolfling, as we used to say on the mm-hmm. interwebs with AIM. Like, that, that, that just doesn't appeal to me, and I don't know why so many people allow comedy to kind of get that dry um, and that lazy with writing. Yeah, I mean, I think they just do, like, trendy and edgy. It's like just doing edgy for the sake of being edgy. That's that's all Deadpool was, and then... Yeah. I think it would have been funnier had they done this maybe 10 years ago, like when South Park said shit, and that was allowed on TV, and they said it, like, 167 times, and, like, because they said it, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse started riding down in the episode because it was an actual curse word. You know, back then, that was where it would have been, like, really in your face to have this comedy. But now it's just, it's like a generation of kids growing up where that language is not offensive. Right. So it doesn't matter. It. Yeah. I don't know. But back to Jojo Rabbit. That was, like, I have a really great appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I think it, if you watch it, like, it'll hit everyone differently. But for me, it really made me appreciative of what I have now. Uh, what I've done, but it makes me want to, you know, again, go into this public interest arena with a law degree just to ensure that people never have to make, like, the really bad choices that, you know, individuals and characters in the movie had to make because, like, the acting was phenomenal. Scarlett Johansson was just, like, Uh the purest, nicest, motherly figure in the movie. Um, And, like, but it really did expose, like, a lot of the dark, dark dark themes that Nazi propaganda was pushing out and the fact that they they went through and they kind of made a satire out of it but at the same time it, it became very aware that these were real things that people had to go through and it made it like v- much more um, like you, you could you could sympathize much more with the individuals that actually had to to go through this kind of horror right so the the basic premise of the movie is what like the uh jojo rabbit he is like hitler youth and then like the movie follows him as he's like dealing with world war ii and the hitler youth right is that the premise of the movie yeah so jojo rabbit is set like in maybe 1944 1945 
and it's roughly about this kid named Johannes Betzler. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a 10-year-old boy living in the occupied region of Germany, and he is a huge uh, fan of the Hitler Youth, and uh, his bestest friend is Hitler, who's played by Taika Waititi, and he is being indoctrinated into the, uh, you know, this this Nazi propaganda machine that's churning out younger and younger soldiers. And his mother realizes that the war is a losing effort. And at one of the training events, he gets injured, and so he has to kind of be reset within the organization. And while at home one day, he discovers that a Jewish girl is hiding in his house. And it soon has become apparent that his mother is hiding her, and his mother is trying to fight as a member of the resistance. And it is this huge shift in JoJo going from this diehard Nazi fanatic to a much more human individual realizing that he is, in fact, not a Nazi. And you know he's learning more about people that are way different than he was led to believe. And I think like it's something today you can definitely draw parallels with communities that are not not connected to some of the stuff that's going on at the border or some of the immigration issues maybe in different regions of the country that really can't empathize with individuals so if you watch it you go okay maybe everything that i'm hearing on like state tv is not what you know the really truth is and these people are suffering and i i should understand what that suffering is before i rush to judgment and that was really the Mm -hmm. theme of the movie yeah gotcha but it sounds like a good movie. It was a great movie. And it was about like two hours long. Um, some like really good uh, actors in it. Like, so JoJo's played by this kid. You've got Taika Waititi. Rebel Wilson was in it. By the way, you know, she was in Ghost Rider with uh, Nick Cage back in 2007. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, she plays the chick that almost gets stabbed where uh, Nick Cage saves her. Um, you have Sam Rockwell. Uh, Sam Rockwell plays Captain Klensendorf. Um, he runs the Hitler Youth Camp, and then he's got like a backstory that kind of shifts your your perception of him at the very end of the movie. But uh, I highly recommend people to go see Jojo Rabbit. There's like some moments that are super uncomfortable, and you just realize what a different world Nazi Germany was, and really how a lot of the world has shifted uh, in the decades since. Yeah, I think it's always kind of fun, always interesting or like a beneficial experience to like reminisce about like what things were like like a couple of generations ago. Like if you think about it, like fascism existed like 70 years ago. Like it's like two generations ago. <laughs> oh, it absolutely did. I think one of the great testaments to that greatest generation is the fact that really boys, you know, 18 and 19 years old, were rushing the beaches of Normandy, were jumping out of aircraft, you know, a thousand feet above occupied France and Holland, were flying in broad daylight, you know, in these B-52s screaming across the sky, and were dying, and were paying an incredible price, both, you know, personally, and then their families back home in the war effort, and the fact that they were able to sign up and willingly do this stuff, I. I'd like to say that we're, we've got a population in America that if that threat arose again, we'd do the same thing, but I just don't see it. I think there was a level of patriotic fervor back then that doesn't exist today, and because of that, people were 
way more eager to take up a cause uh, that was some, you know, some moving force in the world that uni- united people. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of hesitant to like kind of pin it to like one thing. I think it's definitely multifactorial. You know, some like the kind of fit divisiveness in the country and et cetera. It's like a little probably contributes to that too. But then also the fact that we haven't had like a war war in a long time and we've got I mean, the GWAT, I don't really, I don't know if you consider that a war necessarily, you know? I would consider that like a long term conflict. conflict. Yeah. Maybe like in a, during the initial inversion or an in, in initial invasion of like Iraq, that would probably be like war, but I guess nowadays it's not like just a low, I mean, not like a low um, intensity conflict at this point. Yeah, there's such a small population of individuals, like really truly in harm's way every single day. Um, but I think because we don't want to replicate what we did to veterans from Vietnam, we we don't even question the the gravity of you know some of the situations that servicemen are put into or not put into when they deploy. We just kind of blanket them all as you know combat veterans. Um, mm-hmm. So we we just avoid having them return and going through, you know, similar issues. Yeah, I think the Vietnam War is a good point. Like, it definitely changed the sentiment in America in terms of, like, taking care of veterans and the whole... But that kind of, I think, opened up another issue, a problem, especially, like, you know, last week was Veterans Day, about this whole, like, culture of, like, veteran worship or warrior worship, quote-unquote warrior worship. And I kind of think that's like a it's like a very dangerous road to play. I think or there's a very a, dangerous, yeah. There's a definite sentiment. danger to that because it's not from the perspective of a general population. I would say the two classes of people that are most affected by that almost like false sincerity and that false thanks would be the first group is is the actual veteran community. Uh-huh. And the second would be population. I mean, not the population, but uh, like members of the House of Representatives and Senate, so our, our elected officials. So going back to the first one, I think it's really bad because individuals that come out of the military constantly being thanked while they're in, even though they, they weren't conscripted, they volunteered, they knew what was going on, and many of them joined branches that really don't come face-to-face with you know, threats that exist right now in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Syria. But when they get out, because of that, that like, hyperbolic chamber, they feel like they are the supermen to every single person and that everyone owes them something. And then they judge the civilians that didn't join as lesser. And then they don't uh-huh. understand why they can't go back into society because now they're told, oh, you can't transition back to society because it's the effects of what you went through in the military. Well, it's, no, that's not, that's not the case for every single person. But then they look at it and go, well, I can't relate to any of these people because they don't know what I went through. It's like, dude, you did three years and got out. Like, yeah. this was not the majority of your life. You didn't do 25. You know, you weren't in the initial invasions of Iraq or Afghanistan. You didn't really experience the the shell shock that World War II soldiers had, and and not to discount someone's you know experiences, but to somewhat say yeah, like y- you have to get over it and realize that the population doesn't owe you anything. 
Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is like that whole like sentiment of being owed something or that sentimentality of like, you know, I serve, so I deserve something. It's like, come on, man. Like you, like everyone that signs, you know, that signs like that dotted line, they know whole, like they know what they're doing, you know? And I, I honestly, I find it like, uh, it's, it's almost like contradictory or like hypocritical saying that because I don't, I think for the vast majority of people that join the military, I mean, this is just my personal opinion and that like the, the majority, the vast majority of people that join the military do so out of kind of like selfish reasons or not like, you know, like that selfless, like I want to serve my country as a primary excuse or primary reason. Like I'm sure that, that sure, I'm sure that plays into the decision to join the military but I think at the end of the day, the, the vast majority of people that join the military do so out of some like selfish, like ulterior motive of, you know, getting something out of it. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't say I could see the selfish side of it because there's definitely guys and I think officers, especially that join the military because it'll look good on your resume because you can get out in four years and you can say you're going to go corporate and you're going to be this project manager. I think for a lot of individuals, they join the military looking at it as a job and they don't respect the inherent danger in some of the occupations right. and MOSs. And so when they're put in positions that individuals thank them for, whether like they ex- expected to go there or not, then all of a sudden it just inflates this ego that didn't exist when they signed up. You know, everyone, no, I agree. Everyone, when they finished basic, was like, you know, they take photos of one another. But it's like it's gone on to extend to deployments. And we talked about this like a couple months ago. But if you're going to Kuwait, that's not a deployment. 100% not a deployment. I'm going to tell you right now. If you're going to Africa, not a deployment. If you're going Uh. to Korea... Okay, if you're in group and you're going to Africa and you're doing something (laughs) to fight ISIS, that's a deployment. But if you're going to Africa to sit there and, you know build something or sit there and train somebody like that's not a deployment you're doing the same thing when you go to korea and because of calling everything a deployment you've constantly got videos of like i watched a video today that popped up on my newsfeed of some woman she's like an instagram influencer making this video for her husband coming home who's in the air force and acting like you know he had just come back from killing hitler himself personally um, so I get the idea of you're separated from your loved ones, but we got to stop looking at this as every single time we throw the D word out, that it means that we're in some inherent danger. And because of that inherent danger, the population owes us a tremendous thanks. Yeah. Didn't, uh, Qu- isn't Kuwait now considered a combat deployment with hazards duty pay? Is that a thing? Did I th- remember saying that somewhere? It was, I feel like. A couple years ago, especially when, when I started ROTC, there was a major who brought me in. And this is be like before I know what branches are really in the military. The only, the only thing I knew about the Army is that, like, you could be an aviator, you could be in the field artillery, you could be an infantryman and a ranger or a Green Beret. I had no idea what other branches were. Yeah. And I bring this up because this major acted like such a hard ass. He was such a dick. He was unathletic. He had a combat patch, and he was airborne. And then I find out that he's signal. And then I found out from some of the other cadre that his deployment was to Kuwait. And in the entirety of the war that had been going on for seven years, where, like, entire divisions were deploying to actual combat arenas and going on dangerous convoys and getting on the ground, this dude went to Kuwait. 
and then subsequently after he stopped being a uh, cadre, he went and did like public affairs. But I remember he ripped me apart one day for for something stupid. I can't remember what, but you know, he tried to bring up the fact that my parents were in, like how disappointed they would be if, you know, I, I think I said something to someone about their fitness level and because I bullied them, uh, <laughs> he, th- he thought it was like, you know, unprofessional. And then when I of found course. out that his deployment was to Kuwait, uh, all I wanted to do was just stay in long enough to either outrank him or stay in enough to do like two things that would like top him, A, a better branch, and B, like at a bare minimum getting a tab. And then I just wanted to be like, I want to run into this dude at some point in the future. Cause like this guy had stickers all over his cars, like ORB was on there. He had a license plate decal that was like, I served. Like he is just, he's the epitome of the asshole veteran that I've come to absolutely despise because you have to let everyone know at all times that you serve, like just be a quiet professional. Like the veterans that go out of their way that talk about the SEAL community always writing books tend to be the same ones that tell people on a regular basis that they serve through their actions and the shit that they wear. Yeah, I I a hundred percent buy that. I think that's like that like um that psycho it's like a psych- psychological thing where like you know that you didn't like have a you know, like fulfilling or like, you know, a great military career. So like once you get out of the military career, you want to like hype it up to make it sound like you had this great experience as a way of like um making up for having a like luster career. And that's, that's like that's a hundred percent uh Dan and I were talking, there was a, a dude that he met that kept going around saying that he was fighting ISIS and uh on his deployment to Iraq and he's an infantry officer and you know, Dan is very aware of, you know, the units that are over there and that are engaging with, you know, actual ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And he finds out that this guy was, like, sitting in the, like, S4 shop. He yeah. he's, he was not a platoon leader. He's not Ranger qualified. But he's telling all these civilians these great war stories, promoting himself, being pompous and arrogant, and, like, really s- putting a bad taste in a lot of... Uh, the mouths of a lot of civilians that are coming across him because he's painting himself to be this war hero and he's actively telling people using the words I fought ISIS when he doesn't have any combat badge and he literally sat there getting MREs for the soldiers like he said it's like he might as well have a tattooed on him that said like bullets can't fly without supply like that, yeah. that's the kind of bullshit that people don't want to put up with and I don't want to like necessarily like disparage or, or like talk badly about the support staff because I mean technically we need you need the support in order to fight but it's like um i mean i find like there's always like a direct correlation between people that like talk about the military service and like the lack or like the level of how they actually serve like if you like you know i mean like if you like like you like run into like you know like a a guy from delta or a guy from cag or like a lot of green berets or even rangers like you wouldn't necessarily know that they were in a very like elite unit you know it's always like the ones that that serve like lackluster careers or didn't do anything like high speed or the ones that always want to make it sound like they're this like high speed operator that like you know fought isis when in reality they were like the pogiest of the pogue well it goes back to what i think we said on one of our first podcasts or the one that we covered when we were up uh coaching the northeastern men's team was you had the phrase like I am a ranger. I am you like give yourself a title and a description and then all of a sudden that's how you define yourself instead of saying I am the type of person who like insert a motivational 
transactional quote that says more about you than just a singular noun does. And it's yeah. the, those types of individuals that can't get beyond that like objective approach to who they are that tend to be the ones that want to be very boastful of things that they haven't completely accomplished, but they've accomplished in the sense that they know what those things should have been. And because mm-hmm. no one else can call them out on it, they're just going to get away with it. I, I think uh, there was a segment from this summer that showed like a huge population of individuals now exist that go and they act like World War II veterans because the population is dying and there are so few individuals left from that era that nobody can question if they put on a uniform and they just start acting like veterans and saying that you know they were storming the beaches or jumping. Um, and I think we're going to see the same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan with a lot of veterans. Um, I know personally I, I've already encountered a dude that like I was very hesitant to acknowledge whether or not he was in because he said some of the right things, but for the most part, when he was talking about deployment, there was just something that was completely off. And um, I was not in the position where I was, you know, going to question him in yeah. front of like a large group of people, just because, like, that's as as a veteran, you don't want to like openly in public disparage guy, another yeah. veteran. Yeah, because it, it just makes you look like an asshole, like you're insecure about you know potentially your service too. Yeah, but it's always so, so dangerous. I thought we did we talk about this last weekend. I brought this up in like a conversation talking about that. I feel like we talked about this last week. We might have. I've been so busy. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, but yeah, it's like that's a huge thing. It's like I'm sure there's a huge population of like not necessarily still in valor. Oh, I guess it would be technically like still in valor because you're saying you did something that you didn't actually do. But I feel like. Especially nowadays, um, where it's become like so, like to be a veteran is like such like it's like it's like virtue signaling or whatever that shit is, you know. Well, or that not, not just virtue signaling. You're a protective class. Yeah. You are considered so like, you, uh, like a minority as a result of your service, and so businesses will get credit if they hire veterans, and as a result, people want to be, you know, a member of you know a small uh, community. Hmm. I think that, that I mean I think that's like the the whole repercussions of like treating veterans as like this whole like minority class and better class. I almost I like I kind of I don't know I just like cringe all the time when I see all these like you know like initiatives or like deals for veterans, especially on like Veterans Day. Like at the end of the day, I don't think any of these like or, or like restaurants or like businesses really give a shit about veterans. By giving this like one, you know, get one free meal for a veteran, you know, thank you for your service. You did great. Like we love you. Here's a free meal. It's like, no, that doesn't mean shit. This is a this is a marketing tactic to get more money. It's just playing on like the 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 sentiment of of we gotta pay back to the military. And I think it's a very I just think it's like a very dangerous pendulum that's swinging back in that in that direction of like warriors warrior worship at this point. I think I really enjoyed like hearing stories from my grandfathers, like when they got back from World War Two. And one of them uh, later in Korea it was just they just went back to their normal life. Yeah, they just went back to work. They and like it, became. You watch Band of Nightmares. Brothers. At, you know, Band of Brothers. They're playing baseball uh, in Partenkirchen in Germany, and you know, Dick Winters is doing the voiceover saying, you know, this guy went back to drive in his cab in San Francisco, and he opened up a paper mill, and he did this, and he did that, and it's like they just transitioned. They were thankful for the service and thankful to to be alive, and they were going to go maximize that opportunity elsewhere and you know, continue living full lives and knowing that that period of four or five years that they went through was just going to be that a period of four or five 
very impactful years that you then move on from and you just use that as a, there's always a worse day out there. There could be always be something worse. I'm just going to, you know, take life as it comes and, and try to find bits of happiness. Yeah. But I, I guess it's like, I don't know. I, cause I see like both sides of it in terms of, um, in terms of like, uh, I didn't mean to face uh, you. Sorry. Yeah. No worries. But I see like kind of both sides of it. Cause I mean, like from a mental, like psychologically standpoint, it's hard to go back to like your normal everyday life after you, you fight in a war and it probably wasn't the best transition for them either. You know, I'm sure they were dealing with like PTSD and shell shock cause they called it back then. But then, uh, you know, they didn't really address that, that issue too because of that. So I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's both sides. There's two sides of it. And I think like both sides, yeah, I mean, you need both of them, you know, you hundred percent do. So now we've talked about the veteran community and the impact that this kind of thanks has, where it's not sincere or just being honest with ourselves. But the other one is the politicians. And I, I, I absolutely think this is the worst of the worst of people who use the military as a benchmark. So uh, yesterday, for instance, I'm watching uh, the news and, you know, beyond all of the hearings that are going on, uh, they'll get politicians that come up and say, okay, uh, you know, what do you think about this? We just heard from Adam Schiff. We heard from Jim Jordan. Um, I want to get someone's opinion on, you know, exactly how this is impacting their constituents rather than answer the question. So Senator Blackburn from Tennessee, and I talked about this on the, the dispatch uh, yesterday. You know, she'll get out there and she'll say something like, hey, you know, during Yovanovitch's testimony, Trump tweeted this very dumb, stupid, inflammatory uh, messaging that is now opening him up to some, you know, further potential for uh, charges by, by the House. But she goes on to say, like, hey, listen, I, I was talking to, you know, the soldiers from uh, Tennessee where she's a senator, you know, that are over in Ukraine. And one of the big things that they want to make sure at the, that this money that President Trump was fighting so hard to get into the right hands wasn't going to fall into the hands of the enemy, that wasn't going to get into the Russian hands. And I want to reach through the screen and be like, no, you're not. And no, it wasn't. And not a single person that you've ever met, I guarantee you, wearing a uniform has ever been like, you know what I was really worried about today? I was worried about this aid money getting to the Russians. I was worried that this money that was supposed to go to Ukraine was going to go to this company called Burisma and that somehow the Bidens were going to succeed in, you know, growing an empire off of influence. Like, no soldier in their right mind, one, would say that because it's very partisan and it's outside of the, you know, the scope of what their responsibilities are. No senior officer or NCO is going to say that because that's not what they're focused on because that's something that the OMB focuses on, the State Department. That's something that the ambassadors work out. There are channels that are well beyond the military. But again, she uses the military as a shield. And because of that, you can't attack her. You can't say that you're wrong because if you call her out, then you're like, oh, you're calling our service members liars? I mean, that's just like one example of one senator from one state that uses the military as a prop instead of using the military for what it should be doing, and which is just like extending our foreign policy rather than used as some benchmark that, you know, they can show their patriotism against. Yeah, but I think that's like the danger of today's political climate just in general, too. I mean, if you look at, I think, like the uh, the numbers of 
veterans that serve in the Congress, it's like at an all-time low, isn't it? Gosh. I thought no, I thought it well, I don't know. You had a lot of a lot of veterans from World War II in Vietnam in the 80s and 90s. Um, I feel like there are a lot of individuals in the House of Representatives that have started um, to get in. Let me let me look that up right Actually, now. Here, I just Googled it. So uh, right now there are, or oh, this is from last November, so November 2018 after the last cycle. So this so it doesn't include any this, anyone that got involved in this time. Uh, but there are 96 veterans in Congress, which is less than 18% of the Congress. And this is compared with following Vietnam in the 70s, three quarters of lawmakers had served in the military. So about 75% of Congress of the Congress had been in, in the military, but That's now incredible. we're at less than 18%. Of, of the 96 veterans in the 116th Congress, only... Uh, 48 of them, so half of them served after 2000, so half of them, only half of them served in GWAT. And then 21 of them served in the 1960s or earlier. <laughs> that's pretty, that's an incredible statistic. I think it then goes back to things like, now that we've kind of got this whole hearing debacle going on and it's going to continue well beyond the new year yeah. into 2020, uh, Trump just pardoned those three individuals. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, was it uh, Lieutenant Lawrence, um, Major Gallagher from the SF? Yeah, yeah and then, then Gallagher. And uh, I feel like that was, I mean, for some of it, you could, you know, possibly agree with the, you know, uh, reducing sentences or, you know, straight out pardoning. But this came at a very opportune time for him to distract the population from the stuff that's coming out from the hearing. And again, yeah. using military individuals as a prop rather than holding through to principles. Yeah, I don't want to get like super political about it, but I th- yeah, I think that's like the whole his whole pardoning thing is is it? I think almost like a, I mean legally, is it? I don't know like the con- what the Constitution or division of powers would suggest. Yeah, I mean, I'm he's a, he's to, allowed to, to pardon. You. So because right, the military but like, isn't falls kind under of the executive and he's the commander in chief. He he has the authority to pardon. So there's no real check. The problem becomes is at what point are laws of war just irrelevant? Because if you right. have a political member that has that kind of power and privilege to say, hey, the UCMJ, which has been yeah. like right, a right. testament of, uh, of, of principle and policy for hundreds of years, is now like null and void. I, I don't believe what they did was right. I don't have a degree in law. And just because I need to score political points, I'm going to pardon three individuals. Yeah, because it's like it's like a doesn't it set like a dangerous precedent. Because isn't isn't this like one of the few? T- I I don't know like the 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 facts behind it or whatever. But isn't this been like one of the very few times in history where a president has like pardoned possible war crimes? It it might be. I haven't I haven't looked that far. I know Stars came out with a show called like Leavenworth Lockup or something where uh-huh. they followed Clint Lawrence, and I think. One of the things I, I didn't watch the the show. I've watched you know a couple of YouTube uh, snippets on it, and while this was going on, there were a lot of Republican lawmakers that were in his corner trying to to get him pardoned, um, because his family was constantly saying like, "Hey, he's not a war criminal. Um, what he did wasn't illegal. He was protecting the lives of his men." The platoon leader that he replaced uh, that had been killed, you know, um, trained up with these guys. 
But then, you know, they're using that as the reason why when he got in there, he said, I'm bringing every single one of you home and you're not going home like in a body bag, something to that extent. And so like nine of his own platoon members came out and spoke against him for the actions when he said, hey, these guys on the motorcycle have to die. Yeah. Like if you're in a formation where that uh, roughly a quarter of your platoon come out and say that what you did was that egregious and they've had the experience there on the ground that you haven't like this is your first day there and you're already speaking these grand messaging platforms like that's a problem. I mean, like uh, aside from the fact that he's, you know, an infantry officer without a tab that didn't deploy there as a role of a platoon leader, you can already guess how I already viewed his skill sets before he took over a platoon and whether or not he should have been given a platoon. But then to go and do something like this and now it's used politically, I mean, it's just setting a very bad precedent that we can look beyond the actual qualifications um, and the charges that individuals are convicted on to score these political points. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I'm sure there's like a different there's a different side to the story because I know like UCMJ can be kind of flawed as a law system, but uh, I don't know. I just find that like it's I just personally think it's like a very dangerous game to play or dangerous precedent to set, especially like as a president, you know, like overruling UCMJ and due process. You know, I don't really know what the right answer is. Well, it's just like a huge disregard for decisions of military juries. So you have individuals that have served, you know, you're going to see a, a jury. You're going to see individuals that are your peers. They're going to look at the situation that you are in and they're going to judge you for that. And for someone that one has never served that ensured that he got out of service in Vietnam by getting, you know, bone spurs, yet he's going on golf you know, for someone to come in and do his own adjudication of that process, I think is, it's not good. And from a law perspective, like if they wanted to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court, they could have because like UCMJ will go up there. I mean, that within the courts, you have the military court and then like the court of the land still can review that kind of stuff. It's just, it could really, I think, you know, in one of the articles they wrote about it, it could erode like the discipline. It just sends this message to troops and commanders that just some laws of war should not apply and you should be able to circumvent the system if you make a large enough media complaint about it. And it's just frustrating, again, having been in the same region in Afghanistan that this guy was as a you know junior platoon leader, but having gone up through the training uh, pipeline and going through JRTC and doing multiple CalFexes and platoon live fires. And then you get there and soldiers are professional. And if you hold them to the highest standard and say, we have an escalation of force for a reason. If we prepare for this terrain that we're about to enter into to the best of our abilities and I allow some maneuver within you know the limits that your squad leaders are gonna be empowered to use, we should be able to overcome almost any threat that we've, you know, been conditioned to. And whether that's an IED, whether that's small arms fire, whether that's mortar fire, like there's an inherent risk, but you can mitigate all those risks through just one, empowering your soldiers to be able to identify the signals that the enemy's going to attack or has the potential to, being able to empower those individuals to take the steps to mitigate the threat on the ground. And then when you have an opportunity to take a step back and go, you know what, I really have an opportunity to think about whether or not I should pull the trigger here. Like, if you have to think, do I need to pull the trigger? Do they really 
uh, impose a, an inherent risk of violence and death on me, then it's probably not the right time to pull the trigger because right. you have enough time to either go away from that situation and reset or you see a weapon and you pull the trigger. But for, for a situation like this where, again, so many of his guys came out and said you are in the wrong, it just discounts them as well. And it, it almost like writes off the, the junior enlisted and senior enlisted individuals that came forth to say what he did was bad based on their, I'm sure, dozens of years of combined experience in reviewing his actions. Right. Yeah. But that's like, but I mean, can't you, the law system can be f- flawed too. Like you can talk about like institutional biases, undue command influence and in some of these cases too, can't you? I'm sure you could. I think you could probably talk about that more with the SEAL case. There was a really good Times article earlier this summer where they talked about the pirate mentality within the SEAL community. You either had cowboys, pirates, or you had, you know, Boy Scouts. And yeah. the pirates wanted to live, you know, that cutthroat life. And the Boy Scouts wanted to adhere to a very strict standard. And then you had individuals that, you know, obviously wanted to take some fancy photos. Uh, over corpses, which is just not professional. Like, I, uh-huh. No matter who you are, it's not professional, whether you're like a, a pirate or not. Um, and that was one of the things with undue influence was they tried to silence a lot of individuals on the SEAL team. And then what they do is they discredit the individuals that come forward saying these guys have had it out for Chief Gallagher since they got to the team because he was this hard-charging pirate of a SEAL. And the guys that came in were these weak you know, uh, insecure individuals that Gallagher had called out before. And because of that, they created this storyline where they wanted to get back to him. And once they had the opportunity, they, they leapt on it. But then when they reported it up the chain of command, just like the whistleblower complaint, you know, it seemed to go nowhere. And then all of a sudden it pops back up because people kept going back and saying, hey, I complained about this. Why aren't we seeing anything done? Like this is this is eroding my morale when we have actual crimes that are being committed. And then individuals give them, you know, the pardon because it says, oh, they were in a really bad, really tough situation or they've they experienced this the week prior. So, of course, that's weighing mentally on them. And, of course, they lost control. It just I hate that because you are a professional through and through and bad stuff happens to you in combat and you have to be mature enough to say, OK, I'm not going to lose the values that. I was instilled with through service by putting this uniform on to make a really boneheaded decision that will really affect the, the, the presentation of this uniform, this unit patch, and my rank for years to come. Yeah. I just, yeah. Uh, we kind of, kind of got derailed there for a little bit. Sorry, I just... It's just one of those things. Like it goes back to the professionalism thing. If you're gonna, yeah. if you're gonna really do something, like do it to the best of your ability, and you know, don't fake the funk. Don't say you did more than you did, but but also don't allow yourself to be a prop for others. But I mean, like we don't necessarily accept being a prop. Like it's kind of at this point, like it's kind of out of our hands. I like we as like a collective veteran community. It's like very much on the veterans' hands at this point. I feel like we it is because you, there's there's no real platform for veterans to speak out, and especially while they're in service, because you can't have guys like Millie getting up there and saying this guy is an idiot. You can't have Votel getting up there and saying this guy is an absolute idiot. Now that like Mattis is out, Mattis yeah, I was saying Mattis, yeah, Mattis has opinions, but I think that's one of the the more upsetting pieces about being a quiet professional is 
when someone wants to hear your opinion, you have to keep it to yourself because then it's just yeah. partisan. Some talking, you become a talking point, an unintentional talking point. Yeah, absolutely. How's the programming now going for post open? What's your, what's the next three weeks going to look like? Uh, so I'm going to do a, another podcast on my own, uh, talking about the entire program, but basically it's gonna be like a 40 week off season for the rest of the year. We're going to do like some quote unquote functional bodybuilding, some hypertrophy shit, do some tempo and then a lot of strength work, uh, as the off season closes. So just, it's a, I think it's a pretty decent off season style programming that kind of builds up over time, um, that I'll start working on and I'll talk about it a little bit on my own podcast in a little bit, uh, but it should be good stuff. Trying to know something, little something different this year. That's awesome. So, are you going to try to build size now that the open is out of the way, or are you going to go for like what? What kind of numbers are you trying to hit? Yeah. So, the, initially, the first meso cycle is going to be like a hypertrophy block, like a twelve-week hypertrophy block, just to get like bigger. But I'm going kind of a far, a little bit away from like the kind of like the standard, almost like bodybuilding style style programming. Instead of doing like more circuits and um, uh, like more stimuli versus like muscle damage approach uh, for hypertrophy training. That's going to so, like, be awesome. Yeah, like more like supersets and like circuits uh, because like we talk about hypertrophy, there are like multiple avenues of hypertrophy. You talk about like muscle damage from like mechanical damage from like loading. You can talk about like chemical uh, or like hormonal uh, hypertrophy from like inducing like a positive hormonal balance. And then you can talk about like the metabolic stress incurred by doing like high rep sets with like low rest and like creating like metabolic waste products that also increase hypertrophy. Those are like the three rough like different mechanisms of hypertrophy. Instead of like, instead of in the past, I've always done like using like mechanical tension and muscle damage to to, to um, stimulate hypertrophy. I'm instead going down the pathway of like metabolic waste products. So like doing more circuits um, and like supersets to, to build up those like hydrogen ions and those other um, metabolic waste products that help increase uh, hypertrophy. That's kind of like the goal this time. Quite, quite. How about biceps? We're going to hit biceps and triceps. Yeah, I always do like in the off season. I always put like uh, some buys and tries in there. Do some more body, like some less known movements, some benching, some like other alternative movements that people usually don't get during classic CrossFit. I try to do toes to bar now almost every single day, like at least a hundred reps through either the workout or like dedicated, like strict non kipping oh, yeah. toes to bar. Dude, I mean, like the, adding any core work to your work to like your tr- daily training has like such like huge possible gains just from adding core work or like unilateral like stability work um i i think i talked about this before but like the core is i think one of the most underdeveloped slash underappreciated um i guess facets of strength because like your core your core strength isn't isn't like your core strength shouldn't be defined by like how many sit-ups you can do because that's not really what your core does and when you exercise you know, like your core is pretty much you're supposed to be like your anti, your stability, your your core should be your stability, uh, your stability like increaser. So it needs to prevent you, your, to prevent your spine from like bending. So it needs to be anti-extension, anti-flexion, anti-rotation. 
um, and you now just to increase stability. So it needs to be able to to exert like a strong base upon which other movements are built upon. And then when we talk, if we think about core training as just like doing sit ups or just as doing like you know like GHD sit ups or just like that trunk flexion, you ignore a lot of the extension and the anti rotation effects that your trunk your core needs to have. So that's why like I've been programming a lot of like pale off presses, doing like um, unbalanced carries, stuff like that, that like encourages your ability to, to maintain a neutral spine position without, you know, uh, without denigrating your uh, movements. So that's kind of like my spiel on, on this core. And, and uh, I always put like core stuff into it, like on different planes of like anti-flexion and extension and, and rotation. We haven't gotten a question yet from any of the fam, but I just feel like it's going to come. If I want to wear, you know, like short shorts and get thick for the Instagram, you know, what kind of program should I be following for those thick photos to be an influencer? You mean like the Instagram influencer? Yeah, I want to be an Instagram influencer. I want to be thick, two Cs, uh, for the short shorts to be thirsty. You could call me thirsty. What program should I be following on the site? Uh, you should probably follow this upcoming block of functional fitness because we because I'm gonna call, I'm, I I hesitate to call it like functional bodybuilding because it's like become so like popular to call like workouts functional bodybuilding, where it's like a CrossFit slash bodybuilding like hybrid programming. I kind of hate to call it because it's kind of very it's very trendy, but that's kind of like the idea of what I'm going for. It's like you're gonna get bigger, but it's like good big a functional size, not just getting big. You know what I mean? I hear you on that. I need to, I need to get on that. Did you know I'm vegan, by the way? Just wanted to let you yeah. Know. I haven't told you yet today again. I know. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like where this this off season is going to go. It's going a little bit different from where traditional, I, from how I traditionally program hypertrophy and getting bigger. Well, guys, you heard the functional side of the house. Let me tell you what the military prep is going to do. Um, we're going to start by preparing you for a five miler. And then we're going to prepare you for two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups, and a 12-mile ruck. And that is going to be all year round. Uh, because if you're doing the military programming, uh, I think the expectation is you're usually taking about six to 12 months to prep for a school or selection. And then when you graduate, it's like you got to eat all of your vegetables before you can leave the table. And I think, Bobby, the programming you're doing is definitely like the dessert. Like that is like the reward. I've earned my tab. I've passed this school. I'm now able to go and really enjoy like the full extent of everything that you just mentioned with working out. Like that's how I always looked at working out like before, you know, when I was at Bullock getting ready for school, but after school it was like, now I get to go back to doing like stuff that's really, really fun in the gym. It doesn't seem so repetitive and monotonous um, with, you know, training up for military programming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, I think the difference, well, cause people always ask us like the difference between like the two programming styles. And I think your military prep style is more of like a outcomes driven programming, if that yes. makes sense. Whereas mine is more of like a holistic, like, uh, I guess like future, like shaping your future. I don't know how to fucking like talk about, it. I don't know. But you know yeah, what I mean? I would say, like, the outcomes that guys that are following military prep and gals should should consider if, 
you know, you're at the point where you're running around a 40-minute five-mile and it's not comfortable, you know, we're going to try to look to take, you know, about five to eight minutes off that time. Um, with the ruck, getting you to the point of rucking like sub 230 with just a consistent walk and a nice gait, pull-ups, body weight movements, the kind of stuff that when you go to schools and selections are going to be the focal point of their attempt and efforts to smoke you, but will never be more difficult than, you know, some of the workouts that we, we put out on a Saturday or some of the, the workouts that, you know, get jammed up next to your 10-mile weekly ruck. Sounds good. Um, have you watched Rick and Morty yet? I watched... Yeah, I watched the last Sunday's episode. This one's the uh, the one about the app, right? The little alien? Yeah, this was, this weekend's... It, or today's what it's supposed to be. What did you think about Rick and Morty last week's Rick and Morty? Last week's Rick and Morty... What was the plot again? Uh, uh, oh, the the one where the, Chris, Rick, the death crystal. Yeah, the death crystal. Uh, die another day over and over again. I thought that was. I thought the ending was the the best part. Where oh, that ending um, was great. Yeah, she was like, yeah, and I just want to go into hospice care, and then, you know, right when the person's about to die, I'll lean over and and read their name tag and say, I love you, Morty. And Morty's <laughs> like, what the <laughs> fuck? What the fuck? Let's Rick, go. Yeah, cover me in gasoline and spiders. Like, I don't care. Well, I, 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 I wasn't uh, thinking about that, but um, okay. <laughs> I thought it was really well done. I didn't see that ending coming. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, and all the fascist, like, other universes. Oh, the fascist under it. I love the, the alternate uh, uh, Ricks. It's like, what is it? Hornet Rick. Shellfish or like shrimp rig. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad you're not a fascist. What? What's he doing here? <laughs> so many like Easter eggs or like hidden references in there. Oh, I have a question for you. Yeah. What's up with Kilomoto? Are we going to start? Because people keep hitting us up on Kilomoto. Oh, yeah. So for those of you that are looking at Kilomoto and wondering where the workouts are, uh, I will get those as soon as possible, uh, you know, up and running. Um, we've got, like, the 175 program. So all those programs should just automatically start populating uh, as you go through. Um, and, uh, oh, shit, I just lost the call with Bobby. Uh, those, those programs will automatically uh, populate on the Kilomoda app from, from now until eternity, so long as you have the app. We will get the other programs up and running uh, probably over the three to four weeks um, that I'll be on, like, my winter block leave. Um, so that will include uh, probably the uh, version three of Ranger and probably at least another functional fitness cycle. So are we going to run, it like, uh, one of the old ones right now? Yeah, right now uh, you can... They should be on an auto reset where after each cycle is complete, um, it resets. So like SFAS will finish up, and then the next week it'll start back all over again. Same with the Ranger School. Same with 175. Uh, we just need to get them because right now we hit the, the, the app doesn't allow you to pick a date and start yet. So uh, it just goes. But for individuals that are looking for these workouts, you know, they want to get them uh, on an app or a, a centrally located uh you know, location, you can still get every single one of these online. 
um, whether currently on uh, cronusfit.org or through the Instagram or through the program archives where you can download them and just kind of keep them as a PDF on your phone. I know it's not the same as an app where you can record because uh, we've got some great scores that come in off Kilomoto, but right now it's just one of those things to, to keep up with during school and continue programming. I just need like a solid week off. Ooh, all right. Well, uh, yeah, so I will... We'll, we'll fix the Kilomoto stuff, and then we will um, get you guys some further programming. But anyways, uh, I think we're going to call it for this week. Uh, it's been a happy Sunday for us. It's November 17th. Uh, so lots of stuff to look forward to this week. We've got the new functional fitness cycle coming out. I'll, have a, I'll do my podcast later today. And I'm sure Sean will release his own weekly dispatch podcast for this week, too. We'll get back to normal scheduled programming from our podcasts. Uh, as always, you can guys can hit us up on hq at kernelsfit.org on email, or you can email us separately. You can email Sean at Sean at kernelsfit.org or me, Bobby at kernelsfit.org, on Instagram at kernelsfit, or online at www.kernelsfit.org. Uh, stay tuned for some new announcements coming up. Uh, we've got some cool stuff in the background that we're working on, so stay tuned for that. As always, guys, we will catch you guys next week. Later. Later.